Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In this series, clinical investigators visit oncologists in community-based practice. And in this lung cancer issue, Dr. Mark Sosinski visits a former fellow, Dr. Matthew Skelton. And after they spent the day meeting a number of patients and reviewing their charts and imaging, they sat down with me to discuss what happened. Dr. Skelton began by describing a previously healthy 78-year-old woman. She presented to her primary care physician a few months ago with dyspnea. Prior to her acute presentation, she was really quite physically fit and walked on treadmill and lifted weights regularly and really enjoyed a very good quality performance status. She's retired in a lake community around Roanoke, Virginia, and has been there for about 15 years. She smoked from the time she was a young woman until about 65 years of age. When she came in with her shortness of breath, she was treated with a course of antibiotics, which was of no benefit, and a subsequent chest X-ray was done, which showed a right lung abnormality, which then led to a CT scan, which showed a mass in the right lung with some mediastinal adenopathy and a right pleural effusion. A bronchoscopic biopsy was done, which showed initially some atypical cells, really was non-diagnostic, and a week later she had a second bronchoscopic procedure with endobronchial ultrasound, and this was successful and showed a poorly differentiated carcinoma which was TTF1 negative and P63 negative. So the pathologist was not able to discern whether this was a squamous or adeno, but just really looked like a poorly differentiated carcinoma. She subsequently had a PET CT, which showed intense FDG uptake in the right lung mass and the mediastinum and the pleura, consistent with a malignant pleural effusion. And she was pretty short of breath when I saw her initially, so we sent her for a therapeutic thoracentesis, and this demonstrated malignant cells, which the pathologist thought actually really looked more like an adenocarcinoma morphologically at that time. So she was diagnosed with stage 4 by virtue of a malignant pleural effusion, non-small cell lung cancer. So Mark, how would you be thinking through this situation outside of protocol setting? Well, you know, the initial bronchoscopic biopsy was difficult to discern her histology was a poorly differentiated carcinoma. Fortunately, you got additional tissue by doing a therapeutic thoracentesis and got malignant cells. Often you can make a nice cell block off of uh, pleural fluid. And in this case, the pathologist was able to take a stand and felt like she had adenocarcinoma, which certainly this presentation I would be very comfortable with. As Matt mentioned, she's got stage 4A disease. Her PET scan was negative outside the chest, but she had malignant pleural effusion, which is now an M1A or stage 4A disease. These are patients where I think in the non-squamous population, the initial considerations relate to who gets mutation testing. And in this lady, you know, Matt and I talked about whether or not we would have done that from the beginning. She had quit smoking 13 years ago. She had a roughly about a 40-pack year history of smoking, and I probably would have sent for an EGFR mutation in this particular patient. You know, I think the value of EGFR mutation testing in the first-line setting is that if they are mutant, then I think a drug like erlotinib is better therapy than standard platinum-based approaches. If most of these patients are going to be EGFR wild-type, and then the first decision point in my mind is, is this patient eligible to receive bevacizumab? She didn't necessarily 
necessarily have any contraindications to bevacizumab. She had a negative brain MRI, and therefore she really had no contraindications to a drug like bevacizumab. And then the question is, what's the optimal chemotherapy to give with bevacizumab? Is it the FDA-approved regimen of carbopaclitaxel bev, or is there room to integrate pemetrexid-based therapy? Certainly her other FDA-approved option would be cisplatinum pemetrexid. But I think in those patients who are eligible to get bevacizumab in the first-line setting, they should get it with their chemotherapy. We can argue about what the best chemotherapy is. So that was kind of my thought process outside of a clinical trial in this patient. This patient was a bit symptomatic. And so, you know, one of the issues is that in practice, and certainly even at our center, sometimes you have to wait more than 10 business days to get the results of an EGFR mutation. And so in many patients, you get the sense that you need to start therapy. And in general, I think if you don't know the mutation status, I think the right thing to do is to start with chemotherapy. You can always alter that if you subsequently find out what the mutation status is. But I think this patient would have, you know, if she were wild type, I would have started with a platinum-based approach, likely with bevacizumab, as she had no contraindications to it. Mark, outside of protocol setting today, what most likely would you have partnered with the platinum and Bev? Well, I like carboplatinum pemetrexid with Bev. I think pemetrexid may be a more active agent. The one criticism we can have there is that we've had a comparison of pemetrexid to gemcitabine-based therapy where it seemed to be better in the non-squamous. We've not had a comparison between pemetrexid and taxane-based therapy, not had a comparison of pemetrexid-based therapy in the context of patients receiving bevacizumab. So that those are a couple leaps of faith I'm taking there. But we've just completed accrual to the point break trial. We accrued 900 patients. This patient would have been eligible, 900 patients to a randomization that included the control arm of carboplatinum paclitaxel bevacizumab versus carboplatinum pemetrexid. So the variable there in the context of everyone getting bevacizumab is the paclitaxel versus pemetrexid comparison in the non-squamous population. So it's going to be a year or two before we have results of that trial. The primary endpoint is overall survival. And we know that the BEV eligible population, you know, has a median survival of in the 12 to 14 month range. So since it's just completed its accrual, it's going to be a while till these patients live out their natural history in this particular setting. So it'll probably be closer to two years before we have an answer there. As long as you brought up that study, which I think some people call the Patel versus Sandler trial, can you also talk about the other aspect of that study, which has received so much attention, the issue of maintenance after the initial treatment? Right. And that's a bit of an issue that may cloud the interpretation of that trial on the paclitaxel arm of that trial, like they did in ECOG 4599. In this trial, you get four cycles of carbopaclitaxel bevacizumab and then continue your bevacizumab as maintenance therapy on the Pemetrexid arm, you get four cycles of carbopemetrexid bevacizumab, but then you continue both the pemetrexid and bevacizumab. So in the now accepted terms we have, we have continuation maintenance both with pemetrexid and with bevacizumab. So if that trial is positive, is it because pemetrexid is just a better drug to use and you should use it right from the get-go, or is it that continuation maintenance that includes a cytotoxic with 
bevacizumab is an important strategy. So I don't know that we'll be able to tease that out from that trial, but I think if the trial is positive, maybe subsequent trials will help us think about that. You know, we don't know the role of continuation pemetrexid maintenance. Pemetrexid is approved as a maintenance drug following first-line therapy that did not include pemetrexid. We have a trial that's been completed, I believe, in which patients were given four cycles of cis-pemetrexid and then randomized to continue maintenance with pemetrexid or not. We don't have any data from that trial. I think that's a very important trial to tell us about the role of continuation pemetrexid in that setting. I guess if you were looking for the perfect trial, maybe the patients who got cis-pem and stopped after four cycles should have been given a maintenance agent like erlotinib or something like that, but that trial was designed you know, before we knew the results of the Saturn trial. So many of these trials, Neil, aren't perfect trials. We're going to have to put the pieces of the puzzle together and compare paradigms across trials. But I think it's nice to be in a setting where we have a number of trials that address issues in this particular setting. And I'll also throw in a plug for the recently opened ECOG trial in which patients with advanced disease, everyone's given four cycles of carboplatinum, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab. After four cycles, if you didn't progress, you're randomized to continue the bevacizumab alone. So continuation maintenance with bevacizumab. The second arm will do switch maintenance to pemetrexid without bevacizumab. And then the third arm will do both continuation maintenance with bev and switch maintenance with pemetrexid. So that's also an interesting trial design. And I think once we get all this data in, we'll have a better sense of how to integrate these approaches in this population. So Matt, what happened with this patient? Well, we had a frank discussion about her prognosis as being, you know, basically a terminal illness at that point and that she was very interested in quality of life rather than quantity of life, but she was also very interested in doing whatever she could if it made sense. So, she was eager to do treatment. She had a pharmacology background. She worked as a pharmacologist. Her husband is a PhD pharmacologist and they had some interest in clinical trials and things. There's a new trial that we have in our office, which is carbopaclitaxel and bevacizumab versus carbopaclitaxel versus a new VEGF inhibitor. And so we discussed that. We discussed standard therapy with carbopaclitaxel. And she was interested in the clinical trial and has enrolled and begun and tolerating it well. What did she get randomized to? We don't know. It's a blinded study. She gets therapy once weekly. The bevacizumab obviously is given once every three weeks, and then the experimental agent is given on a weekly basis. So she comes in every week and gets either placebo or the experimental agent. She's received her first cycle of carbopaclitaxel and either Bev or this experimental agent, and so far doing well. She's probably 10 days post-treatment. Mark, what was your impression seeing her today? You know, we talked a lot about the fact that she had lots of myalgias and arthritis mm-hmm. with her first dose of carbopaclitaxel. And so she was interested in continuing therapy, but not very interested in having more myalgias and arthralgias. And so we talked a little bit about how one could manage that. And I'm not sure that anyone has a great answer for that, but there are a few strategies that one can try. Such as? Well, what I typically do is to kind of prolong some high-dose dexamethasone. It works good as an anti-emetic and also, in my experience, has really helped some patients with the myalgia and arthralgia syndrome. The other thing is that people need to be, you know, after your first cycle, you don't quite know how bad and how quickly the myalgias and arthralgias can kind of come on. And if you know that, the second time you can begin your pain medications along with the steroids a bit more aggressively and perhaps tolerate them better. They were largely gone by the time we saw her today for the most part. And that's kind of what we talked about the most. She 
although we didn't discuss it with her, you know, this was a patient that I probably would have pushed for an EGFR mutation testing, assuming that there was either a cell block or the initial bronch biopsy had an adequate tissue in that particular setting. But she was, I think, hopefully thinking that she would get benefit from this. I told her that obviously she'd have to get through two or three cycles to really get to a point where you could appreciate what benefit she was getting at that point. And she was certainly happy to continue on knowing that there might be something that could abrogate the myalgias and arthralgias she had with cycle one. Now, the myalgias and arthralgias here, do you think it's most likely the paclitaxel, the carbo, or both? I think it's most likely the paclitaxel. And what's the pathophysiology or the presumed pathophysiology? You know, I have never heard a good explanation for why that happens. You know, I always tell patients, you know, I tell them about that side effect. I tell them that in my experience, the severe myalgias and arthralgias occur in about one in 20 patients. The likelihood that they're going to have that is therefore unlikely. But I just want them to be aware of it because if it does happen, it can be pretty scary for patients. You know, they don't quite know what's happening. And, and occasionally, you know, one in 20 patients, it can be quite severe. And so I kind of warn them about it, but I don't necessarily prophylax against it in the first cycle, other than that if they start to have it, they should call us and we'll tell them what to do with regard to pain medications and stuff. But, you know, it's a very self-limited approach. I'm not quite sure anybody understands the pathophysiology of it. At least I don't. Matt, what's your experience with the syndrome? Well, I guess I would echo what Mark says. It can be, in a minority of patients, very severe. And we found nice benefit with steroids and pain medicine, just as Mark said. So we talked a lot about what we'll do with the next cycle. And if that doesn't work, then we could actually try to dose reduce the paclitaxel as well as another strategy. 